I forgot my notes. I'm going to go get my notes. Take a moment, turn to someone next to you and say hi. Thank you. Now that everyone knows each other, I joked with the morning, the early crowd, that by the end of the day, we're going to have down pat what the early church did when they greeted each other. What they would do on Resurrection Sunday, they would come to each other, and in our terminology, they would give each other a handshake, but back then, they gave each other a hug and a kiss. We're not going to do that here. Uh, but they do, they give each other a firm handshake, then they, one of them would say, he is risen, the other would say, he is risen indeed. So here we go, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah, yes, amen. Today is Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, that his identity as Son of God was proven, and that our salvation is real beyond a doubt, because he is risen. Tomorrow is Monday. I hope that didn't come as a shock for anyone. <laughs> Tomorrow, the holiday will be over. The weekend, the meals, the extravagance, the Easter egg hunts, all in the past, real life will happen again, back to the old grind. And unfortunately, too often the celebration of Easter dies once that alarm clock Monday morning goes off. It's not that we've forgotten that our Savior lives, but it's more like we act like we've forgotten. So today, we're going to talk about what we need to remember tomorrow. Today, we're going to talk about God, which in a church, you hope that that's what they talk about. As we talk about God, we're going to spring off of John's account of Resurrection Sunday. This morning for sunrise service, we talked about the first half of John chapter 20, when the ladies went to the tomb and they discovered that the tomb was empty. Now we're going to pick up that narrative in John chapter 20, verse 11 to 18. We're going to talk about what happened after the ladies found the empty tomb and they ran back and told Peter and John that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Will you pray with me? 
Oh, Father, thank you. As I've prayed multiple times this weekend, thank you for the amazing gift that you've given by sending your son to earth to live among us and to die our death. Thank you for wanting to have a relationship with us and taking the full measure of the cost of earning back that relationship on your son. Lord, it blows my mind that you would care so much about me to send your son to die, to go through that pain so you could have a relationship with me. Thank you for doing that. Lord, I ask that you forgive us for all the times we live our lives forgetting that relationship, forgetting that our Savior lives, therefore we can have hope and joy and all those other things. Lord, forgive us of that. And I ask that starting today, you would remind us over and over again what it means that we are saved and we have an assurance of new life, new hope, and eternity and resurrection. Today, as I bring your word, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's talk about God. Jesus told Mary that he was ascending to the Father. Our God is what he says. So what do we believe about this God? First off, we believe that that God is the creator of the universe. We believe that this God is the creator of the universe. Moses records for us uh, the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Genesis 1, 1 to 3, Moses says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. When we speak of God at the beginning of time, we, use the, we throw that phrase out, God, the three-letter word, over and over and over again. God, what do we mean? We're talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together bringing about the creation of the world, speaking everything that we know of into existence out of nothing, is what Scripture says. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, specifies this. He, he speaks, actually, of Jesus Christ creating the world. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1.16, Paul says, For in him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So scripture tells us this God is the creator of the universe. Scripture also tells us that this God is the sustainer of the universe. Paul continues talking about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.17, he speaks of Jesus saying, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Many of you know I love history. In 1802, there was a guy by the name of William Paley, and he was going about his life, and he said, You know, I'm bored. Let me write a book. So he decided to write a book, and he titled that book Natural Theology. In this book, he, he, he puts out his theory that looking in creation, he said there had to have been an intelligent designer that created all these things around it. It's too complex for it to happen by chance. He says this in the book. And he brings out this, this idea, this, this metaphor, this illustration of a watchmaker 
taking all these little bits and pieces of watches together and creating this masterpiece. And he looks at this masterpiece with a smile on his face. He winds it up and is ticking oh so marvelously. And he puts it on the shelf and he walks away. Letting the watch run until it's doomed end of destruction when the winding goes away. He said that's what this intelligent designer did. He wound up creation, he put it all together, wound it up, and walked away, letting it go its course. But scripture teaches us that our creator is intimately involved in the universe. As Paul said, he holds all things together. The children's song goes, he has the whole world in his hands. And children all over sing that song. One kid said to another, hey, Jesus holds us all in his hands. He's got really big hands. From Genesis to Psalms, to Isaiah, to John, to Revelation, scriptural details the ways that God is active in this world, holding it, guiding the strings of history to the glorious end that he has promised. Our God is the creator. He's the sustainer. We believe that our God is the judge of the universe. He's the judge of the universe. Paul writes about our God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. When Jesus was on this earth, he routinely went around to city after city and he did a lot of miracles, but he also taught a lot of things. And he taught that God has a standard by which everyone must live, a standard by which God will judge everyone. One of his famous sermons is the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this sermon, Jesus repeats the phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And Jesus lays down a standard for life that is more stringent, more strict than anything that his hearers had heard before. Everyone at that time, the standards for morality was based upon what the culture said. What the culture said was right, was right. What the culture said was wrong, was wrong. Unfortunately, God's standard for morality is based upon his holiness, not on what the culture says. And the creator and sustainer of the universe says he will judge his creation on whether they have met his standard or not, not the world's. So this God is the creator, this God is the sustainer, this God is the judge, this God is the savior of the universe. Back to Colossians. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. Colossians 1, 19 to 22. Paul says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present to you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Scripture tells us that every single person who has ever lived, every single person that has taken a breath has sinned against God. We have not met his standard of holiness. We haven't even gotten close. We were created to be in the image of God. But every day, through our works, through our actions, through our conversations, we shatter that image. 
We're like a little kid running around a glass house with a baseball bat saying, hey, let me see what I can do. And we just break mirror after mirror after mirror. And because of what we do, we will be judged one day. We'll be sent to an eternity apart from God. If God is goodness, and if God is hope, and if God is love, if God is all these attributes that we really, really, really like, think of what an eternity apart from all of those attributes that we really, really like would be. We call that eternity hell, and it is not a good place. God looked down at us, though, with mercy, and he said that he loved us. He said that he didn't want to be separated from us for all of eternity. So he sent his son, the creator of the universe, to live among us. He brought pictures of eternity for the 33 years that he was on this earth as he did miracles and he taught about eternal things. He brought hope and confidence and peace. He brought dignity to those that society kicked to the curb and said weren't good enough. He brought humility to those who lifted themselves up higher than they should have been. And then in the middle of his ministry, Jesus died. Jesus, God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the judge of the universe, died. The most painful, humiliating death imaginable. And why did this creator, sustainer, and judge die? So that he could pay the penalty for our sins. He suffered judgment for us so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might have a personal relationship with our creator once again, the relationship that we were created for. In Christ, we could have it. This is my God, the creator, sustainer, judge who died for me. This is my God. Is he yours? Is he yours? Let's talk about God. We've defined him. Not only is he this what we defined him, but he is the living God. That's what we celebrate today. And hopefully we celebrate every day. He's not dead. There's no tomb somewhere where we can bring flowers and place it on the tombstone. We can plant little crosses around it. It's not there. There isn't any because he's not in the ground. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. It is a historical proven fact that Jesus died. They stabbed his side to make sure he was dead and they found out he was dead, dead. And then they placed him in the tomb and they surrounded him with so many spices that if he was not dead, he would have died from the spices. He's dead. But on the third day, he came back to life. How do we know that is true? Well, it's because people saw him. We read here an account of Mary seeing Jesus. And the guy who wrote that account is the Apostle John, who himself saw Jesus. He ate meals with Jesus after the resurrection. Not only did he see him, but Peter saw him and the rest of the apostles. Not only that, but over 500 people saw Jesus alive. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Jesus is alive, and being alive, that means everything that he said is true. Everything he promised is an assurance. Being alive, it means that his salvation that he offers is secure. And being alive, he's able to sit at the right hand of God and to intercede for our behalf every single day. One of my favorite scriptures in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 to 25. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 22 to 25, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Scripture tells us that if we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus alone, confessing that we cannot do anything to save ourselves, that we are sinners, and if we turn to him turning away from anything else that we might trust in, thinking anything else that could save us, whether it's the good works that we do, saying, hey, if I just do enough good things, perhaps God will let me in. Or, or perhaps we're trusting in church attendance. If I check my name off on the list a certain times every month or a certain time every year, I'm good. Or perhaps we're trusting in our baptism or our confirmation or our confession or our communion or the fact that our mommy and daddy went to church all their life. If we trust in any of those things, it's not enough. Standing in religion does not save. What saves is if we turn from all of that and say, Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I trust in you alone for my salvation. The people who do that, who believe in him, he promises to save them. He guarantees that one day he will usher them into eternity. It isn't a, oh, I hope so. It is an assurance. And we're promised to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe from the moment we place our faith in him until forevermore. A relationship where we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to do that. We can read the word of God ourselves. We can pray to him ourselves. And we can have the hope and the peace and the joy that only a relationship with the creator of the universe can give. And he sits next to the Father in heaven every single day and he points down to us and he says, that one's mine. He is the living God. Is he yours? He is the living God who knows our name. Now we finally step back into our text of John. Mary's heart is broken. The man she had given her hope for in this life who had given her dignity whenever anyone else showed her shame. This man who had promised a change in society, this man died. And it appeared as if someone had stolen his body. She's crying in the garden, tomb is behind her, and Jesus comes up to her. And through her tears and through her grief, she doesn't recognize him. And he says, Mary. One word but I can hear the tenderness in his voice. He knew her name. I think of Samuel sleeping alone in the temple hundreds of years before this. His mom had dedicated him to the service of the temple. And he's sleeping there alone in his room. 
The priest is on, in another room, and I can imagine him sleeping there, wishing he could be home instead of living with a man who didn't really care about him. In the middle of that night, the voice comes from nowhere, Samuel, Samuel. He knows his name. Hundreds of years before that, there was a gal by the name of Hagar who's pregnant with Abraham's child, and she's kicked out by Sarah because Sarah is jealous of her. And she is wandering in the desert, knowing that she is going to die, and her baby inside of her is going to die. And she sits beside a spring of water, crying, hopeless. In the midst of that silence, from nowhere comes a voice, Hagar. God knows our name. David is taking care of sheep forgotten by his family on the most important day when a man has come to anoint the next king from David's family. His father's in the house. His older brother's in the house. He's in the field with the sheep because he's ostracized as the youngest. And God says, don't anoint these ones. Anoint the one in the field. God knows our name. As the creator, the sustainer, as the judge and the savior, God knows our name, which means that he knows us. In the world, sometimes we can feel like a small speck in the cosmos. Everything is busily rushing around us. Everyone's trying to get their tasks done. And there we sit, alone in the turmoil, alone in the mess. And God says, I know you, Dean. I created you, Karen. I knit you together in your mother's womb, Mary. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Mike. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 43, verse 1, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The living God knows our name. This is my God. Is he yours? The living God, he's the living God who not only knows our name, but he knows our life. Jesus looks at Mary and sees her. He's not just saying her name, but he sees her. He sees her tears. He sees her pain. He sees her turmoil. And when he says in verse 15, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because he is the God who pursues a relationship with his creation. He knows Mary and he knows her life. He knows her joys. He knows her sorrows. He knows her hopes. He knows her dreams. And he cares about them. King David knew about this God. He spent the first 15 years of his adult life running from his life because people were trying to kill him, including the current king. Several times he cried out to God something like what he wrote in Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Or Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Or Psalm 10, why, O Lord, are you so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He was in pain, but he could always pray these drastic, emotional truths to God because he knew that God, 
The God who knew him, who called him by name, knew his life. And because of that, though he started the Psalms that way, in dire distress, he could finish off like he finished off in Psalm 13, verses 5 to 6. He said, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. God knows our life. He is with us. I talked earlier about the great watchmaker, how people think that God just started the world and then left. But the truth is that God is intimately involved, not just in the world, but in each of our lives. Jesus himself said in John 16, verse 33, John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Then Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He knows our life. The hymn writer said it this way, Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched by my grief. When the days grow weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. He cares enough about all our lives that, in fact, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that he works all things good out of the things we experience, those who are called by his name, who are his followers. He is able to redeem the things that we think cannot be redeemed, but he's able to bring amazing good out of our brokenness. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the judge of the universe, the savior, the God who lives, who knows our name and our lives, this is my God. I ask you again, Is he yours? The living God who knows our name, who calls us our life, he knows our life, he calls us to follow him. After Jesus rose from the grave and got Mary's attention, he gave her a task to do. John records for us in chapter 20, verses 17 to 18. John chapter 20, verses 17 to 18. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene then went to the disciples with the news and said, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary, Jesus tasked Mary with telling his good news to the disciples, telling them that he was alive. And Mary had a few choices. I mean, she heard Jesus say, go do this. She could have ignored what he said and go about her normal business. Right there, it was the happiest moment of her life. She found out that her Savior was alive. He raised himself from the grave. She knew that. Now, if she had went and told the disciples what was happened to her, all the happiness inside of her, what would the others think? They probably wouldn't have believed her. They would have thought she was crazy. And so that happy trip that she was on, completely killed, gone. So I can imagine Mary saying, ah, you know, I like this happy feeling right now. I don't want to do anything to ruin this happy feeling, so I'm going to take this happy feeling, I'm going to stuff it in my little suitcase. I'm going to bring this happy feeling with me, and I'm not going to tell anyone else about it, because I don't want this happy feeling broken. Or... She could bite the bullet and tell her friends what happened to Jesus, which she did. She was a good lady. We know that the rest of the disciples believed her because they had their own experiences with Jesus, except for Thomas. He didn't believe right away. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. 
But Mary and the rest of the disciples were not tasked with convincing the other disciples what the truth was. They were not tasked to say, Jesus is alive, and these are the five points why I know he's alive. Mary was just supposed to say, he's alive. This is what you're supposed to do with it. She was tasked with sharing the joy that was in her heart and present the truth for the disciples to accept or not accept. In the same way, Jesus gives us a task. We believe that he is alive. Yes, that's what we're celebrating today. We have turned to him in faith, hopefully, the one that knows our name and our life, the one who died for us that we might live. And if that is true, we're not supposed to stuff what Jesus has done for us deep inside ourselves. Instead, we're supposed to proclaim his goodness to the world around. The psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3, Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3, the psalmist said, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those who he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those who gathered, he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. We are to tell our story, what Jesus has done, the fact that he is alive and that he has saved us, he's given us hope, joy, peace, personal relationship with him that lasts for all of eternity. We're to tell our story, whether it's every night with our family, even though they've heard it before, it's good to tell it again. Maybe it's on holidays when we're gathered with extended family. Many of us are going to be with extended family for Easter dinner. Great time to tell the story that he is alive and this is what he's done in our life. Maybe we're on a coffee date with a friend or we're sitting across the desk from a coworker. We are to tell our story no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. What we celebrate should be on our lips tomorrow because truthfully we have an amazing truth that the creator and sustainer and judge of the universe cared so much about me that he died for me. But he didn't just die for me. He did not stay dead. He is alive. He knows my name. He knows your name. And he cares about our lives. And he wants to have a personal relationship with us. What more do we want? What would be more exciting to share about? Definitely not the Huskers. Jesus commissioned us to tell our story. Jesus said in John 20, verse 21, John 20, verse 21, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The living God who knows our name and our life calls us to follow him. This is our God. Is he yours? Today, if you have never made a decision for yourself to trust and follow Jesus for your salvation, and you're trusting in all those other things in your life, I ask you today, Turn to him in faith. If you want more information about that, please talk to me, talk to someone else. Let, let Resurrection Sunday not go by without the experiencing the resurrection in your life. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've never shared what God has done for you, do it today. Go and eat dinner with someone and tell them your story. Practice it. Even if someone who's heard your story before, practice it so that tomorrow... When Monday rolls around and that alarm clock goes off and we groan and the celebration just leaves, that our story is still on our lips and we keep telling it to whoever we're with because the fact is, he is risen. Ah, you're asleep. He is risen. Hallelujah. Father, thank you that we serve a risen Savior. He is in our lives today. 
He walks with us and he talks with us along life's narrow way. Thank you that we have a relationship. It's not this blah life that we live with an uncertain future, but we stand redeemed. We stand joyful and hopeful because our eternity is assured. That when you look at us, you don't see a sinner anymore, but you see Christ's righteousness placed on ourselves. And thank you that we know this because of the resurrection. We know that we will live forever because of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, I ask that you would continually teach us the spirit of celebration and that it would lead us into the rest of the week. Thanks, Father. Amen. Dr. Hymnals and